0: You've just tuned in to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past, the podcast that focuses on inspiring you to move forward from what's been holding you back in life. Each week, we talk with clinicians, coaches, mental health advocates, and those who've overcome tremendous odds and now use their journey to encourage you throughout yours. I'm Matt Pappas, Certified Coach and NLP Master Practitioner, alongside Joanne Supressi, Author, Certified Coach, and Hypnotherapist. In addition to talking with amazing guests on the show, we share practical tips and insightful strategies that empower and encourage you to break free from anxiety, self-doubt, and the negative mindsets that keep you stuck. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Hey, greetings, friend, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to pause for just a second and thank our amazing sponsors, INLP Center, offering a world-class online neurolinguistic programming and life coach training to people in over 70 countries. If you've ever considered becoming a coach or simply want more information on their programs, just head over to inlpcenter.org and to daily recovery support. Interactive daily group calls in a safe atmosphere for survivors of complex trauma, equipping you with the skills and information you can use every single day in your healing journey. Learn more about this affordable resource and get signed up at cptsdfoundation.org. So today we're talking with Lisa Sabaniak. Lisa is a motivational speaker and success coach. She's trained in NLP and Reiki and uses her experiences to help women build a life of value and worth after abuse. In addition to her speaking engagements and work with clients, she offers courses, webinars, and workshops all designed to help empower survivors as they heal from their past. All this information can be found on her website and blog, lifelikeyoumeanit.com, and I'll be sure and link that in the show notes. Lisa joins us today to share some of her story as a survivor of abuse at the hands of her stepfather, including the challenges and triumphs she's experienced and continues to experience along the way of her healing journey. You'll learn how her mother came to her rescue and validated what Lisa told her was happening at the hands of her stepfather. That kind of support played a critical role in her life as she began healing and continued to grow and realize what she was capable of. She talks about the importance of not allowing your worth or the validity of your experiences to be tied to the outcome of a court case when filing charges against a perpetrator. Lisa shares some of the struggles she faced in her teen years of using detachment as a coping mechanism to escape the feelings and memories of trauma and how that led to struggles in therapy and dealing with suicidal thoughts. You'll learn of her struggles with relationships and sharing her story with others. Through it all, her journey has been full of trials, but ultimately she's been able to learn from those experiences, grow, and use her voice to help other survivors. There's so much more, so let's jump into that chat with Lisa Sabaniak, starting right now. So hey, Lisa, welcome to Beyond Your Past. It's Matt and Joanne. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you guys both so much for having me.
0: It is a pleasure to have you on the show. We're excited to learn to learn more about you and your survivor journey, the work you do, and uh, anything else you want to share. So before we get into that, though, if you want to take a minute and say hello and um, introduce yourself, that would be great.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. So hi, everyone. My name is Lisa Savaniak, and I am a motivational speaker and NLP coach and a soon to be author with my first book being published and released in June. So very excited about that. And I tend to work with survivors of abuse, empowering them to build a life that they deserve, because that's my background as well.
2: Wow, wow. Well, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm so excited. That was one of the best intros I've ever heard in my life. That was so oh. good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> very good. Yeah, um, well, we're very excited to have you on. Um, survivors of sexual abuse definitely need um, encouragement and motivation. So I know you have a personal story to tell. So can you share with us what you are healing from?
1: Absolutely. So I am healing from uh, three types of child abuse: so uh, physical, mental, and sexual. And my abuse started when I was two years old with my stepfather at that time, and went all the way until I was twelve years old when my mom finally found out, and then she rescued me. She um, she believed me first of all. She didn't even doubt me for a second, and got me the heck out of there. And um, my abusive uh, ex-stepfather was, you know, the sexual abuse obviously takes a tremendous toll and and as does the physical abuse. But the biggest thing that really was a a barrier for me was that mental abuse, that psychological abuse, because every day of my life for those 10 years, he told me that I was ugly, stupid, worthless and useless. Nobody was ever going to love me and I was never going to amount to anything. And you know, when you hear that as a kid, you know, from somebody that's supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be admiring, they're supposed to be taking care of you, your, your life is, is literally in, in their hands, you don't know how to, to care for yourself any other way, um, you know, that becomes your truth. And so, you know, even though I knew what was going on in my house was wrong, I also thought that all the adults in the world knew everything because I couldn't, I don't know about you guys when you were growing up, but in my house, if I so much as tried to roll my eyes behind my mom's back, she was on it. <laughs> she knew everything, And so I just kind of assumed, especially these were days before the internet. So, you know, there was no quick Google search if I had a question, right? Mom had all the answers to everything. And so I just kind of assumed naively that my mom knew what was going on. All my teachers knew, my family, the parents of all my friends. And I thought that nobody was doing anything because I wasn't worth saving, because why would I think anything else? Right. In, in my young eyes, it was, well, I'm either worth saving and somebody's going to do something about it or I'm not and they're not and they weren't. So my mom came to me when I was 12 and she at just flat out asked me, is, is he touching you? And my first reaction, I wanted to say no because of the, the shame and I didn't want to have this conversation. It felt very awkward and, you know, and uncomfortable. And then in my next thought was, wait a second, why is she asking me this? She she knows that this is happening. And that's when the real shame actually started to lay on my shoulders because I started realizing in that second that, oh my God, she had not known. And for these last 10 years, I had been going through this under the assumption that nobody was helping because everybody already knew and I just wasn't worth it. Mm. And I was wrong. And so luckily in that, you know, you have so many thoughts and in, in that one millisecond and luckily all that went through my head and I came out with yes. And I know I don't even remember her asking another question. She just I, I mean, she did ask when it was happening and I said it was happening at night. I would wake up and um, and he'd be up beside my bed and um she said, the next time, if this happens, I want you to scream as loud as you can, grab your lamp that's on your bed and hit him with it. Just do anything so that I've got time to get into that room and save you while I figure out what the heck to do and where we're going to go. I said, okay. And we had one night in the house and that was it. The next day she had already sorted everything. We picked up everything in just what would fit in a suitcase each for both of us, my little dog and one car. And off we went to stay with some friends and she immediately got me into counseling. You know, she did all the things that she thought was right at that time. But you know, when you go through abuse like that every single day, and especially those years of your life, my way of coping was to detach. So I had survived all the, those years by literally detaching my body from my, my mind from me Right, what was happening to my body was not me, right? I was safe. So, to go into therapy at the age of 12 or 13 and be then asked all kinds of questions about how I was feeling and how that felt and what this was like, and I didn't even understand that question, that was completely foreign to me. What do you mean? What do I feel? Like, I don't feel anything, right? That's how I have mm-hmm. survived. But I also was too young to be able to articulate that. I didn't understand it myself. So how would I be able to explain it to the therapist? So I just kind of sat there in these sessions and didn't really respond to anything. The other part of me didn't want anybody to know because I just wanted to be a normal person. I thought if I just didn't say anything then nobody would ever know, and I could just go on with my life, and I could forget all about it, and I could just watch other people and how they interacted with people, and I could learn from them, and I could be a normal human being, except it doesn't really work that way, right? So my um, my insistence on ignoring the issue and not dealing with it then meant that I went into my teen years with, you know, horrible depression, horrible thoughts about myself. I really, truly believed I was ugly, stupid, worthless, and useless, And I was looking for proof that he was wrong in all the wrong places, right? I did that classic thing of, I thought that I was not ugly, stupid, useless, or worthless if somebody else could love me. If I could just find somebody who would love me, then that meant that he was wrong and I'm right, I am worthy, except I didn't believe it myself. So I wouldn't allow it, myself to see it all around me. There were lots of amazing friends that I had, you know, amazing family, lots of people that were willing to show me my value and my worth, but I was not able to see it at all. And so that, you know, really created a, a huge problem in my kind of subconscious mind of how I was relating to, to people. And I ended up, you know, getting really suicidal um, towards the end of my my teen years there. And it's, it's not that I wanted my life to end. I just, I wanted the pain to end. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I thought I knew how to end it. I thought I knew that the end of the pain would be somebody to love me, but nobody was willing to love me. And that just would send me into my cycle, you know, even more and, and deeper and just throw me deeper and deeper into that pit of despair. I didn't realize that I was the one with the power to get myself out of that hole.
2: Thank you very much for sharing all of that. That there's yeah. there's a lot there. There is a yeah. lot. Yeah. It's understandable not uh, wanting to talk about it all those years, especially if you detach yourself. And that detachment is such a common, as you know very well, it's a very it's a common um, process that victims put themselves in, yes. and it's often unconscious. Like I think you realized, you know, it wasn't something you planned to do. But it was a protection that your brain that your you know your mind just automatically gave you it's a protection you know, but I'm curious to know when did you finally start talking about this
1: um honestly i I think i tried i I thought that I was trying anyways in my twenties um mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had my first husband was is a wonderful human being, but he was it's interesting that I chose him as my partner because he was the first person that um, really treated me with respect and value. And, and that was the first person that I was willing to see that was treating me that way and allow him to treat me that way. But he yeah. also was somebody that could not handle my story. So okay. in my in my 20s is when I met him and he was not the first person that I had told, but he was you know, one of the, the first people that I was starting to open up to, but he couldn't handle it in any way, shape or form. So that suited me quite well because I was ready to acknowledge that this was impacting my life so greatly and that I needed to do something about it. And I had been for several years up to that point. Um, But the fact that I couldn't actually sit down and talk to him in depth kind of gave me that little bit of protection, I, I suppose, of not allowing yeah, myself to get too in depth, interestingly. So it yeah. was um, about three years ago. So I'm 44 now. And three years ago, I'm um, I'm now divorced to that husband and married to a new husband, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and this husband is uh, is very very willing and open to to hearing me talk about this. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, which is amazing, and I didn't even know that about him. Before, you know, at the early stage of our relationship, at all. But three years ago, um, when I was really unhappy with teaching, I I wanted to get out of that field and I didn't know what else to do. I wanted to do something that would help people. And so him and I started brainstorming. And I came up with the idea of writing a blog, even though I'd never even read a blog. But uh, for some reason, I thought, (laughs) this this sounds good. I can do this. Uh, But I didn't know what to write it about. And all of a sudden, it hit me, oh, my God, I'm going to write it about this. I'm going to actually come out, so to speak, as a survivor in a blog. That's what I'm going to do. And he 100% had my back, but he basically learned about a lot of the, uh, of the, you know, experiences that I had, uh, from me writing that first blog. I mean, I, sh- you know, I shared with him as I was going through it and asking him, you know, do you think this is too much? And, oh, this is very scary and that type of thing. And once that blog came out, it's like everything just opened up for me. And now I have absolutely no problem talking about any of it because I'm not that same person anymore. The blog has made me realize just how much a difference I've made to my own life and how different of a person I am and how different my whole life is that it's like I'm talking about somebody else.
2: That's amazing. It's amazing that, you know, talking about it. Seems like it's been a healing process for you, which is yeah. which is wonderful. <clears throat> now, let's backtrack a little bit more, because um, I'm curious to know, was there any justice that was ever served um, against your stepfather?
1: Yeah, um, well, hopefully there will be now, because I have uh, just filed my sexual assault report back in October of 2018. Okay. And he was investigated, arrested and charged on three counts in December and uh, we're now just awaiting him entering a plea and then the subsequent trial that will happen from from that so uh, so we'll see uh, i'm trying to not be attached to the outcome and uh, you know because i don't want to get into that position where i am really putting all of my energy into, well, I want him to be found guilty and have to serve this particular penalty. And then, you know, what if he is found guilty, but then he's not given that particular penalty. I don't want to feel any kind of, you know, regret or any low. I want to be able to experience the the profoundness of, of him being found guilty. And if he's not found guilty for, for me, going through this whole process and knowing that the police detective that investigated it thought there was enough evidence to actually go through and charge him. That's a huge hurdle to overcome, especially when you're talking about this many years, right? I'm 44 now. Yeah. We, we left yeah. when I was 12, right? We're talking about 32 years worth of time. So, you know, that, that's really massive. But when I was 16, the system was completely different. I tried to go forward then and um, oh, wow. I, I was very naive. You know, I was just sixteen. I didn't have any idea about anything. And um, my mom uh, tried to help me with this. She, we had a family lawyer, and she had phoned the police department as well. And, and she didn't really know where to start either. And uh, both the lawyer and the the police department said the exact same thing, which was drop it. They both said it was my word against his. At that point, we had left four years earlier. So it looked really bad that I had waited four years to do anything and Mm -hmm. that I was just a little girl. Nobody was going to believe a little girl. And they even went one step further. The police in particular went one step further and actually said that the media would get a hold of my name and my picture and all of my friends and everybody I've ever known would know. It's like they knew what to say to drive fear into a teenage girl, right? Of course, I was a minor. That never would have happened. (laughs) But I didn't know Mm -hmm. that at that time, right? So that's all I needed to hear when my mom came back from that. And it was like, hell no, 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 no. I just wanted to come forward to get him off the street so he couldn't hurt anybody else. I didn't even, wasn't even really thinking about justice for myself at that point. I just wanted to do what I could to prevent anybody else from getting hurt and so the thought that I was going to have everybody know when that was basically my way of dealing all that time right was keep it secret nobody needs to know that frightened the hell out of me and so no I was not going to do it and then of course every subsequent year that passed if I got an idea or an inkling to try to to go forward again it was like well now another year has passed if if four years was too many certainly 10 years is too many 15 years Right? Until finally, in October, I was like, well, forget it. I am I could file the report. I mean, they could come back and say, forget it. But at least I know I've made the decision to, to try to go forward.
2: So this must have validated you a little bit more, too, that he was wrong.
1: Yeah, hugely, because um, the the case going forward is specifically for the sexual abuse. So that means that, you know, I'm I'm not really able to talk about the kind of psychological or mental abuse or the physical abuse. There was no evidence that was gathered on, on those counts. So, you know, the sexual abuse was all behind closed doors, of course. I mean, so was the physical to, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the most difficult things to try to, to prove. Um, so I, I really, you know, the the detective that was handling the case was absolutely amazing. Um, But I really wasn't expecting much. I was, I was honestly expecting him to come back and say, you you know, it it is unfortunately a your word against his word. You know, how can you go forward with this? And instead, to come back with him being charged on three counts was awesome.
0: One of the things you mentioned, um, I think, is really key, especially in this day and age, is understanding that regardless of whether the person who abused you ever gets what they deserved in terms of, you know, uh, the law goes, never diminishes what you went through. It never takes away from your story, never invalidates your trauma. And I think your trauma story is yours and nobody can ever take it away from you. And I think just what you mentioned about not relying the validation of your story and your trauma based on the outcome of, of a court case is really just something so important.
1: Yeah. I I agree. I think um you know I'm I'm finally in a position of being able to really fully believe that. And um and I I just I wasn't before, right? Everything would have hinged on what everybody else thought. And um and now it just doesn't. I I know that this is my truth. I know that this is what happened and um I have to surrender control of what I can't control and and that's really the basis of all the healing that i've done is to to really look and and say you know if if there's something that i can't control aka the thoughts and actions of somebody else then i could spend all my days worrying And all my days trying to, you know, action plan what, you know, what my reaction is going to be and how I'm going to deal with this and that and the other. No amount of worrying is going to change the fact that I can't control it. The only thing that can can do anything is for me to just let go of that need to control it
0: that is so huge for to be able to come to that re- realization because when you feel like when you feel like you're trying to control something you feel like you're less vulnerable and more in control when in reality as you mentioned in circumstances like this as far as an outcome of a case goes or anything else you literally have nothing else mm-hmm. to do other than to share your story and then release it and it sounds like you've definitely done that and that's inspiring for all of us one other thing that i wanted to back up on that i found incredible like The second you mentioned it earlier on, of all the episodes we've done on this podcast, which is now about 130 plus, I can count, I think on one hand, the number of people who actually had somebody to rescue them which is so rare. I mean, you mentioned how it was your stepfather and then your, your mom came to rescue you and she validated you immediately without question. And I maybe if you want to talk a little bit more about just how, how important that was for you, especially at such a young age, because way too many survivors, uh, more often than not, never had anybody to rescue them at all. And so I think it's amazing that you had a mother who was able to step up and, and stand by your side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. I think at the time that it happened, I I was grateful because, you know, I I I loved my mom then. I I, I know it sounds like a, a really weird thing to think that your mom knows what's going on behind closed doors. That is terrible and doesn't think that you're worth saving, but you still love her. And, and not in some weird attachment way, I just really genuinely loved my mom. And I also knew that he was also doing stuff to her as well, right? So, um, you know, in that, in that moment when she really found out and, and made that decision, if she had made the decision to stay, I think I, I don't know how many years I would have existed. Let's just say that, whether I would have taken my own life from the depression that would have ensued from, you know, not having her protect me when she really outright knew when I had the evidence right in front of me that she knew or whether he would have killed me himself, right? Cuz every day in that house was life and death for me. So, you know, for her to to take me out of there but then never to ask a single question about it. Right. I mean, part of that was her not being able to handle the answer, of, of course. Right. But she said in the beginning, I'm never going to push you to talk about it. You come to me and talk about it when you are ready. But just know that I'm always here. I love you. And, you know, that that's it. And so, you know, even in that moment, you could tell you know, from the look in her eyes, she had a million questions that she wanted answering. I mean, when you think about it from her perspective, right, this was her husband. And you know, he had been doing God knows what to her kid. And all she knew is that I had said yes to him touching me. That's all she knew. She didn't know anything else. And in fact, she went for years thinking that it um said other things had happened that actually hadn't happened until I spoke to her about it when I was in my early 20s. And um, you know, what that must have done to to her, thinking, oh, you know, because she didn't know. There was so little that she did know. It made her mind go wild with all of these different scenarios in her head of what could have been happening to me. And she sucked it up and just didn't ask me about it because she had said in the beginning, when you're ready, Lisa, you can come to me and I'll respect the fact that you don't want to talk about it. You just life-altering, all of it, the fact that she would listen, the fact she would believe me, the fact she would do something about it immediately and get me out of there, the fact that she'd never look back, the fact that she would never try to make me uncomfortable to ask about it, that she would never meet her own need of just getting those answers to those questions that she had, right? She had to wait a decade to start getting some answers, and some of those answers didn't come until three years ago when I wrote my blog and came out as a survivor, right? That's almost 30 years. This poor woman had to wait to get some answers to her questions. And so many of my clients are exactly the same as what you were saying, Matt, where they didn't have that. And so now as the adult, as the the person that's helping other people, now I can look at it with even different eyes and say, my God, like to not have that, I, I can't even imagine what that would have done to my psyche. I don't know if I would have been able to climb out of that hole as soon as I did, which was long enough, right? It wasn't until I was well into my twenties and early thirties that I climbed out. I don't know how long it would have taken me if she hadn't been there to rescue me because that in itself was what I could always go back to, to say, I am worthy to somebody. I'm something to somebody.
2: Your mother sounds like a very strong person
1: absolutely I mean <clears throat> it's funny because my mom if you ask her she would um she would not think that she is a strong woman particularly back then right she still is in that kind of blame um um scenario for herself where she mm-hmm. you know thinks that she should have been able to see the signs and um and of course her and I have had lots of of conversations now with me as a, a full grown adult about the fact that <clears throat> that was kind of his MO, right? He was, he was very gifted in that way. He knew that he couldn't abuse a, the daughter of an empowered woman, right? He had, he had to mm-hmm. break her down sure. before he could do anything with me. Uh, <clears throat> and then also he had to break me down right from the very beginning so that I would never think that things should be any different. Um, and so, you know, my mom feels a lot of guilt uh, for that. But of course, I didn't see any of that guilt, right? For me, I saw strength. I saw a woman who looked her kid in her eyes and asked, is this happening? She said yes. And mom looked like looked like she was gonna panic in that second and then just right, this is what we're gonna do, right? Game plan came out, made it sound like it might take a couple of weeks for her to sort out a solution. Instead, it was the very next day. Superwoman right? She had yeah. us a place yeah. to live, had everything sorted, had spoken to my school, had, I mean, this woman had it done, right? And then we never spoke about it until I was 16. And I wanted to go forward. Then we had little conversations about it. Then she went out and bought herself a, a registered firearm and started taking um shooting lessons at a, at a gun range um, to try to protect us. I mean, that is strong, wow. right? Like, to, yes. to me, it was like, my mom has a gun, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous but you know at that time I was like yeah woman roar and uh, you know like I had no idea what was going on in in the background of my mom's mind right mm-hmm. now as a full adult and you know with NLP under my belt and and knowing everything that I know about our beliefs and and how they drive all the decisions that we make now I can look and I can see decisions that my mom was making when I was a teen like not wanting to date anybody and, you know, things like that, um, where it was, you know, very clearly she didn't trust, and and she says this openly, she didn't trust her judgment of other people. She could have been so wrong about him and then not seen everything that was happening, um, that she just didn't want to date. But to me, I didn't see that as any kind of weakness when I was growing up. I, it was almost like, a, "Yeah, we are women. We don't need no man. You know, hear us roar. Mm-hmm. We're doing just fine, yeah. right?" She's single, single mom with a single salary, and you know, I still have all the things that everybody else has, and you know, so it was it was very empowering. And mm-hmm. um, and now, when I do realize all of the thing, all the things that she's struggling with it's, it's even more empowering that she's been able to create this life, despite all of these beliefs that she has about herself, and you know feeling all that guilt and that shame and everything that she has going on. But she was driven by one thing and one thing only, and that was to make sure that I was all right. right? And so to that, that mm-hmm. thought of putting somebody in front of, yourself like that, you know, something that I I could never know about until I met my husband and stepsons. Right. And now I feel like I know it's not exactly the same. Obviously, they're not my flesh and blood, but I would move heaven and earth for them. I, I get it. I get now, you know, putting your own yeah. stuff aside so that they can have everything that that you want them to be able to have. Right. And so I kind of look at my clients in in a similar kind of way where, Not that I'm going to give them these things, but that in helping them to empower themselves, that they'll be able to do that for themselves is is an incredible feeling and an incredible thing to be able to do to help other people
0: it's really amazing, and i 'm so glad that you 're able to to write about it and to and to share your story and to you know have your blog and work with survivors now and let 's kind of transition a little bit now into the work that you do and you mentioned um, mm-hmm. earlier off the air about you know kind of how the journey of of your life took you to the point where you are now working with survivors and and you do conferences and, and you have a book and webinars and all kinds of stuff. So if you want to share a little bit maybe about the journey that got you to this point and some more about the work that you do, I think it'd be pretty cool.
1: Yeah, cool. Thank you. So I started out my career as a registered massage therapist in Canada. And, um, you know, I didn't really put a lot of conscious thought into that career. But subconsciously now I, I realize that that was a really powerful step for me to take, to be able to help other people through positive touch, considering everything that I went through with such negative forms of touch growing up. So that um, did a lot to help heal me as well as healing other people right and that sense of of pride when somebody would get off my table and not be experiencing the pain that was bringing them to tears beforehand was oh, it was just it was an overwhelming and exhilarating um feeling and about 16 years into my practice i started worrying about my own physical health and how i would be able to give 100 percent to others if my own health ever started to fail and i started um I started worrying about uh, my future and how I could still give back to the community if I couldn't do massage therapy. And I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason and that we end up with these thoughts that pop up in our heads seemingly out of nowhere, but they really are our kind of our higher self that's guiding us in a direction. So I hadn't really injured myself. I was a fit, healthy person. There was no reason for me to start having these thoughts. And I was in my 30s, so I, you know, I was very young still. But I went with it. I, you know, I had learned enough in my life up to that point to listen to my own voice in my head. And uh, so I went back to school, went to university, became a, a, a teacher and ended up moving off to England which is where I live now, so that I could be a science teacher. And when I got here, I really disliked it. (laughs) I love teaching, but I dislike the system here. And I'm a very firm believer as well, with all the work that I've done on myself and my healing journey, that if there is a problem that you are unhappy with, you are the only one that has the power to do anything about that. So your choice is to do nothing and still complain, or get off the pot and do something about it. And so in this case, there's nothing I can do myself about the school system here in this country. And so all I can do is to leave the profession and find another way to give back to the community in a way that will make me feel empowered and exhilarated and maybe even help me on my own healing journey. And I had no idea what that was going to be. I didn't want to get back into massage therapy because here in this country, um, massage therapy isn't as reputable as it is in Canada. So uh, I knew that that was going to be a really tough go. And I really wasn't into that. So And I just didn't feel drawn to it. So my husband and I started brainstorming things that I could do. And I started talking about um, wanting to do a blog, which was really odd because I had never even read a blog. (laughs) So I, uh, again, just listened to that little voice and went with it. And the next thing you know, I was telling my husband that I should blog about my abuse story and more importantly, my recovery from it. And it just came out of nowhere. At this point, I hadn't really been talking openly to anybody about the fact that I had had this abusive past. My husband knew, but it it wasn't something I was going up and, you know, hi, my name is Lisa. I'm a survivor of abuse. right? I, I just wasn't doing that. So I wrote this first blog. I put it out there and I felt amazing to be able to kind of come out and get that off my chest. But the blog didn't focus just on the abuse part of it. It focused on the things that I was able to do to get me to the other side, climb out of that hole. So I felt like it was really contributing. And I got such a huge response from that blog And all the responses were positive, but they infuriated me, which sounds odd, but will make sense in a second. So I had most of the people come back and say, oh, my God, Lisa, I had no idea. You have always been so positive. You have always seemed like you have your life together. I had no idea that this was your life. And these were some people that have known me almost my entire life through those teen years when I was suicidal, right through my 20s when I really struggled as well. Um, But even the ones that were saying it now, and I was really infuriated by that thought that especially those people that knew me during that dark time, that I had done such a great job putting on that mask to try to look like everything was fine, because I didn't want anybody to ask me any questions about it, because I didn't want to face it. And I realized in that second, that was all shame and shame that didn't belong to me. That was his shame, not mine. And that that had caused me to be somebody that I wasn't even. And I could have, I could have maybe had help from people. I could have had a shoulder to cry on. I could have had support from people that I just didn't allow myself to have because of that shame that was his to bear. And then there were other people that came forward and said, me too. And this was a couple of years before the Me Too movement, right? Some of these people were my nearest and dearest friends, one in particular who was a dear friend of mine all through my teen years, who her and I were sitting there both with suicidal thoughts, both of us wanting to take our lives to end that pain because we had both suffered in very similar ways. And yet the shame of that prevented us from being able to talk to each other. Now, I don't know what kind of support we would have been able to offer each other, but maybe just knowing that somebody else that you know, somebody tangible sitting right in front of you that also experienced something may have been enough to just take away some of that pain to not feel like I was all by myself, that nobody else knew what I was going through. And you can hear the passion in my voice. I can hear it when I talk about it because it infuriates me (laughs) still to this day when I think about it. And that just, I immediately just turned to my husband and said, right, I have a mission now. And my mission is to shed the stigma of being abused. And I'm going to do it by sharing my story, breaking my silence in any way that I possibly can. I'm going to leave teaching and this is going to be the only thing that i do for the rest of my life
2: well we definitely hear your passion and <laughs> your passion is very contagious and i can tell that people who are listening to you can definitely feel it and you're going, you're going to impact a lot of people with your story so
1: we need to find we need to encourage people to come and find you so Yes, so I um when I decided to write the blog, I created a website called Life Like You Mean It. And so people could go onto that website and they could find all the different ways to contact me, all the different um healing streams that I have available because I know as well as anybody else that has gone through anything like this that we're all on our own path and wherever we are on that path is exactly where we need to be and so it might not be that you know one particular thing that helps one person is is going to help everybody and so i've i've created these three streams that have lots of different variety within them to be able to help people wherever they are. So if that's just reading a blog post, or if that's joining a free Facebook group for some support with other people that are like-minded, or whether that's getting into coaching or webinars and courses and things like that, it's all there on the website. Thanks again for joining us. And again, there are so many aspects of your life and
0: your work and your journey that we didn't get to. So we're going to bring you back again for another episode to dive into, into some more of the specifics, if you're cool with that.
1: That would be awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should supersede the direction of a medical doctor or any mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. We would sure appreciate it. Also, please consider sharing this episode with someone who may find it helpful. If you would like more information on working with Matt as your coach, just head over to beyondyourpast.com and schedule your free one-hour chat. If you'd like to learn more about working with Joanne as your coach, please check out JoanneSuppressi.com and contact her for more information. We're always on the lookout for new guests. If you're interested in joining us on an upcoming episode, just head over to beyondyourpastradio.com and contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.